What's up, listeners? Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. This is the show where we talk about our favorite content. Today, we go into some of the jobs we've had that were not our favorites. We quickly touch on what content we're currently consuming. And then Josh is exploring one of his favorite movies and his least favorite fonts. Get ready for Avatar. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. So, Brett, what's the, what's the worst job you've ever had? So, uh, in preparation for this episode, and I don't really know the context or, or what you wanted to go into in detail, but I have been thinking a lot about that and I haven't really had any horrible jobs. I feel like I've had jobs that I wasn't good at, which made them very difficult for me. Um, and I feel like the last year and a half of my life has been so turned upside down with not being able to fly and working towards getting back in the cockpit and, you know, just like basically, <clears throat> basically leaving my career of 10 years where I'm comfortable and know what the hell I'm doing. And then just getting kind of like thrown into different industries. Um, it's been, it's been fun to explore that a little bit fun, but, uh, one that came to mind is ski school. So I was a ski instructor last winter at Park City. So I was working for Vail Resorts. And there's definitely people that are very good at that. There's people that are naturals. Um, I'm not a bad skier, but I just don't have a lot of experience working with kids. I'm not very comfortable around kids anyway. I don't like kids that much, to be honest with you. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, you know, I think kids are great, but I just like, you don't have to say kids are great just because <laughs> I have kids, Brett. They're not, they're not my first choice of, of human that I'd hang out with. Um, but you know, it was, it was so incredibly challenging. I just like, I couldn't believe it, you know? And I, I feel like it's just a combination of things where you're teaching a sport that is kind of inherently... Uh, a little challenging to learn because you're on like a slippery surface. You have lots of equipment. You have boots. I mean, I've been skiing forever. You know, your students are probably wearing blue years. jeans. They're what? I said your students are probably wearing blue jeans. There were a lot of a lot of tourists that. I mean, I had I had kids in ski school that had never seen snow before, so if that gives you an idea of like their comfort level, like walking around. And I mean, I, you know, I've skied for 20 years and I still don't like walking around in ski boots for God's sake. Right. So to, to take somebody from never having seen snow to having some control, being able to slide on a surface and bring themselves to a stop and start to turn, um, you know, and I, the thing that that was interesting though about it that I think, was particularly challenging for me because I would look around at other instructors and I could tell, I mean, I had a great uh, instructor instructor. He was kind of like a wind tunnel examiner, if you will. He was, you know, this guy that had like, I don't know, 60 years of, he was this German, this older German guy who specialized in training 
specifically kids, but also training other uh, ski school instructors. And I mean, he Sounds was like a real harsh taskmaster. He, no, he was like all about making it a positive experience, making it fun. I mean, he was just, he was so fun to ski with. He, he just like, he knew how to like see right past people's egos and like, you know, talk to them in a way that is non-threatening and just inviting you to sort of play with different concepts instead of it being like, okay, we're going to run these drills, right? It was like, let's play with this. Let's feel this edge control with this ski and let's see what happens when we shift our weight. He was phenomenal. But even the other instructors that it was their first year doing that, I could just tell they had a comfort level that I didn't have. And one of the things that I think I struggled with was was discipline. I mean, I just think I did not know because I hadn't really had a lot of experience with kids and like setting rules. Uh, these, I mean, kids will just six years old, eight years old, they'll just walk all over you unless you put your foot down, you tell them who's in charge. And I struggled to do that, you know, not having Especially kids with my eight own. of them. They'll steamroll you. Oh man. I think my very first, uh, lesson we were very understaffed and fortunately these kids had a little bit of experience skiing. It wasn't all first timers. Vail does a pretty good job having a good ratio of instructors to, um, to customers learning how to ski. But with this particular group and kind of the situation that it was early season, I ended up with like eight kids and I'm just like, I have no idea what to do. But hey, all season, nobody got hurt. Everyone had fun. You know, a couple of tears, a couple of hot chocolates. It's all good. But that was, I mean, I was, I was, it, it was much more difficult for me to teach kids how to ski than it was to fly a 747 across the Pacific Ocean, for sure, hands down. It's insane. Yeah, that's... You know, it's interesting that you said that, um, a ski instructor, and it's also interesting that you said that you never really had like a bad job, which I think I've kind of been blessed with that also. And who knows if that kind of option is even going to exist in the future. It, it may start being kind of a situation where people got to take the work they can get. You know, we've, you and I work together at the wind tunnel a lot, and that's definitely like a, uh, you know, it's not a really important job. It's more of a fun job and it's not going to change the world, but it's definitely something that people really work hard to get. So, you know, it, it probably seemed more important than it was, but I think that a lot of the jobs that I've had have, have been kind of along those same lines. You know, I worked at a, a bungee jump park when I was in college. And then, uh, when I first moved to Colorado, I basically just dropped everything I was doing and moved up here to pack parachutes, which, you know, it's hard backbreaking labor, but it's also really fun. You know, it involves skydiving. But the first year that I, you know, the first year I moved here, I had no plan other than just go and pack parachutes for the summer and then figure it out after that. And so when the, uh, when the winter rolled around, uh, I was just looking around town to try to find some job I could do. And I, mean, I was 24 years old and I, I didn't want to get just kind of like, you know, run of the mill job. I was looking for something cool, but there wasn't anything available. So I ended up getting a job at this gas station, uh, in the, uh, it was like in the parking lot of some grocery store. And for like two weeks, I was just stressing so bad about 
not wanting to do this job. And so on the way over, like my first day, I'm driving over across town to go work at this at this gas station. And on the way over, I made the decision like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. This isn't, uh, this isn't how I want to spend my winter. So by the time I got to the parking lot, I pretty much made my decision. I was going to go in and tell this guy I wasn't going to work there. So I walk in and then the first thing he's like, hey man, are you Josh? Yeah, man, I'm so excited to teach you to do this job because I'm going to be quitting in a couple of days and I got I to gotta train my replacement. And I just like shook my head and I was like, sorry guy, I'm not going to work here. And I could just see like this crushing expression on his face of like, what? But who's going to take over for me? And oh, man. I would I would never say this now. Like I was a, clearly a little bit of a prick whenever I was a or in my early 20s, but I just looked at the guy and I was like, ah, you should have thought about that before you started working at this gas station guy. Oh, man. And now, now, as, now that I'm an adult, I realize like, man, this guy probably just had like responsibilities or like bills to pay or kids to feed. And I was such a jackhole to him. But I don't know, you live and learn, you get a little bit older. And now I'm thinking about like what the future job market job market might be. That might be the kind of work that we need to do. And that's the kind of stuff that people are going to need to do. So it's crazy what you learn growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy what you learn now too. I mean, I feel like I'm still in such a like huge learning process right now. Definitely. And, you know, there's a lot of eye-opening stuff going on in the world right now. But what that led me to was, uh, oddly enough, it led me to snowboard instructing because we had a friend who worked at the drop zone with us that was like, I can probably get you guys jobs uh, as snowboard instructors. And I had only been on a snowboard one day ever my entire life. So <laughs> we were like, sure, let's do it. So we went to, uh, we went up to the ski resort Eldora in Colorado and the first part of our, like in our indoctrination for uh, being instructors, they taught us a sample class and everybody else is like kitted out in like this awesome gear. And you could tell they've all been like kind of like you, been skiing or snowboarding for 20 years. And so I'm like sitting there like furiously taking notes and like they're showing how to do a falling leaf and how to do a, a, a you know, a, a toe edge turn, a heel edge turn, link turns. And everybody else like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is basic stuff. And for me, I'm like, hmm, I've never even heard of linking turns before. That's interesting. And so... I, I wish I was this crafty still, but I ended up taking that class as, that they were trying to teach me how to teach, using it to more or less learn how to snowboard. And then a week later, they had me out on the slope again, doing the same kind of class you were doing, teaching kids. And I probably wasn't even as good at it as you were because I could barely stay on my board, but it was amazing. I got through the entire season without, again, hurting somebody or getting hurt. It was crazy. They kept giving me a paycheck for it, but I did learn to snowboard that year. Yeah, I, I think that my uh, short stint as a ski school instructor definitely improved my skiing. I mean, there were so many. I was like a self-taught skier, and there's so many fundamentals that I had lacked and were made obvious to me just like the first couple of days of learning how to be a ski school instructor. I was like, oh man, I'm really uh, sitting in the back seat here. I gotta. Got to get my uh, center of gravity over my base of support. You know, all these PSIA 
you know, technical terms for what you're trying to do with your skis to achieve the most efficient results. And it's like, I, I didn't know any of this stuff. You know, I just like knew how to have fun tearing down the mountain with my friends. But really, when you don't have those fundamentals, it, it limits you, you know. So it's it definitely is. It has been a, a learning experience. What what do you think you're going to do if kind of wind tunnels don't pick back up as much or people aren't spending money on, you know, the high level free fly coaching that that is your specialty? I mean, do you have you thought about that? Because for me, you know, I'm kind of hopefully approaching the tail end of my hiatus from aviation and they're going to be furloughing God knows how many pilots. I mean, it is, um, Delta is parking 600 airplanes. So my buddy who I kind of came up in aviation with who I thought he had it made, right? I mean, he's been at Delta for over three years now, four years. He's going to be furloughed for, for sure. He's not going to have a job. And I'm sure things will, you know, I'm sure it'll pick back up and you still have pilots that are turning 65 or retiring even earlier than that. So I'm, I'm sure there's going to be jobs again eventually. But if you looked at the numbers in 9-11, I mean, there were guys that were in class at American Airlines. Uh, one of my chief pilots when I flew for Great Lakes Airlines, uh, Rich, he was probably in his early 20s when 9-11 happened. He was in class at American, probably thinking that he has a job for life. He's going to retire with this company. He was furloughed for 11 years. I mean, it's you just never know what's going to oh happen God. with an industry like that. It's so cyclical. Yeah, you know, right now I've, I haven't put a ton of thought into what I would do if the wind tunnel industry completely collapsed. I feel like the facility and the business will be there. Something that worries me is the potential for students to not have the funds to fly anymore because I, I pretty much fly at the pleasure of the students, you know, the people that, uh, that use me as a coach. So that's the, that's the main issue I can see happening in the future. But you know, if that, if that happened, I think that I would want to get into the graphic design industry. I mean, I've been working as a freelance graphic designer for the last six or seven years and it's been kind of on and off, but kind of figured one day when my body gave out, that's probably what I would want to step into anyways. But who knows? I mean, I would also go and deliver packages for Amazon or really anything if I needed to. You thought about working at a grocery store? Uh, it hadn't occurred to me, but I mean, it, it's something that may need to happen. We'll, we'll see. Luckily, yeah. my wife has a really amazing job. And right now, my job is pretty much to raise our kids until they're old enough to be in school. But after that, you're going to have to do something. Yeah. Does being a stay-at-home dad, does that pay pretty well? Oh, yeah, dude. Mad dividends, bro. (laughs) That's excellent. It is amazing, though. I wouldn't trade that for anything to get to see kids grow up. It's great. Well, you could be a ski school instructor. and (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did that, and that wasn't quite the same... uh, wouldn't sit quite the same quality of life. You didn't get that uh, baby Yoda uh, serotonin oxytocin response? Absolutely not. I'm pretty <laughs> sure those kids hated me. They're like, this guy can't even snowboard. 
Well, um, so talking about content right now, since we are still kind of uh, shuttered away indoors, have you added anything to your content circuit since we talked last? Uh, yeah, I definitely have. I uh, Well, I finished the book I was reading, Daniel Suarez's book, uh, Delta V, about uh, asteroid mining. Fantastic. Um, a show that I've been into lately, which is a little out of the norm for me, but the uh, the subject matter is very near and dear to my heart. Is have you heard of Lego Masters? It's like yeah, a reality I just show. Heard about this recently, it is so good, I Brett. This. I know you like Legos as much as I do. Oh my god, I uh, love Legos. So they will take a it's a real a reality show, but it's also a, it's a contest. So each week. Uh, Will Arnett is the host, and each week he brings a challenge to the the builders, and it's a team of two, and they're like, you know, this week you have to build a bridge, and then we're going to put weights on it and see how much weight it holds, and then the person whose bridge holds the most weight is basically they are protected from being eliminated, and then the lowest two that, you know, the ones that collapse the soonest, they're in the, they're in the bottom two, and then the judges select one of them to eliminate, so it's you know, there are like structural builds. They do builds where they have to, you know, create a movie scene that uh, the judges will give them like two random subjects. And so these guys are just like unbelievable Lego sculptors and engineers. It's so cool to watch. And it, it makes me think like I've built a couple of things out of Legos that are still sitting on my shelf because I'm so proud of them. And you look at them now, you're like, these are absolute hunks of junk compared to what you can do with Legos. <laughs> Man, that sounds then, awesome. Um, Will Arnett, you mean uh, Lego Batman? Exactly. He is just fantastic. He is That's, awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they were making, I'm pretty sure it was the first episode where they were making jokes about that. It was like, because they do like these little animations with minifigs and you know they'll have him like talking to the group as a minifig and stuff. It's really cool. He, then, uh, uh, I heard an interview guy. with him, and um, I guess he wanted to be like a serious drama actor and never thought about doing comedy. And it's kind of ironic how his whole uh, careers turned out to be like, you know, just hilarious, over the top kind of comedy with Arrested Development and uh, his voice acting too. What is that? Bojack Horseman? I guess that that show deals with some like pretty dark, serious subject matter, but. I think it's still considered a comedy, but man, he is a funny guy. Yeah, he's hilarious. Uh, and then one other thing that I just added last night is, uh, did you ever play Half-Life? I don't think so. No. So there are these, there are these games by Valve, and they're, they're kind of like uh, quintessential first-person shooters, and they just created a VR prequel to half-life 2 so it comes between half-life 1 and half-life 2 and it's been this this long awaited thing to have a new half-life game and they brought it out in vr since you know valve runs steam and steam vr is the platform that a lot of the uh the uh vr headsets the home sets run off of so it's like it was a huge thing and i don't have a ton of time for vr because it's quite an investment but since we are Locked in for a while, I figured I'd give it a shot, and oh my god, Brett, it is almost a religious experience. It Half is Life's so like a, so uh, amazing, kind of post-apocalypse dystopian, like desert scape where you're yeah, it's like for, um for things and 
Yeah, it's like they're the story is like post alien invasion, and then you know the I'm not sure it's what city you're in. It's called City Seventeen, but it, it looks kind of like Paris or something. And you know you'll have like this really cool like old architecture, and then overlaid on it is all this these like alien constructs and things like the the police officers, the combine they call them. They're in these like thirty foot tall. Uh, Walker mechs. It's all based off of alien technology. So it's just like totally intimidating seeing this stuff in VR because VR, it, you've done it at my house. You know, it's like so immersive. The things that you would on a screen would just be like, oh yeah, this is kind of a crazy action game. When you see it in VR and it's wrapped around your body and you know, you have like stereo audio and everything just, it just feels so real. It makes the scenario so much more terrifying. It's fantastic. If you can never come over again, you should check it out. <laughs> if we ever get to record or hang out again in person. Right. What about you, well, man? Anything maybe new? We'll, uh, maybe we'll get to plug in in the Matrix and I'll just see you in VR. Um, yes, yeah, I've been, I've been, uh, Bree and I have been watching McMillions. Have you heard of that? Uh, is that the HBO show about the McDonald's uh, Monopoly scam? Yes. I I just heard that. That's all I know about it. Oh man. It you know, I I have a feeling on this podcast I'm going to end up being the uh documentary guy, like just like you're going to be the video game guy cuz I just don't I haven't been playing video games um since we lived together and we played a lot of video games, but uh documentaries are kind of my jam and when I see one that's just like it's not just an interesting story but it's also a story that you have no knowledge of really. I mean, I just, I can't believe the, the high level amounts of money that were being stolen essentially from, I guess you could say McDonald's or you could say the people that were buying all the, you know, McDonald's stuff to get those uh, monopoly pieces, which was definitely me. I mean, I definitely remember as a kid, like the McDonald's, uh, my own personal McDonald's visits were uh, increasing exponentially during those Monopoly games. I mean, it was fun. And, you you know, there was like tons of prizes. I'm sure I won like some fries or, but I mean, th- this was like serious organized crime. This documentary that HBO put together is incredible. I can't wait to talk about it in depth. That's been a lot of fun. Um, also been watching Hunter's which uh, is on Amazon. And that is uh, Jordan Peele actually created that show. And that's like a, uh, when when is it set? Maybe the 1970s, I want to say. And it is Jews hunting Nazis that have escaped to the United States and are just kind of like living among us, living a normal life. They escaped justice and you know the these people aren't having it so that's been a pretty awesome show not up in here Woo, it's uh it's it's got everything that you know jordan peele just he his stuff his like horror movies and you're like what he's doing horror movies now what what are you, what are you talking about everything he touches is just gold man i mean he's so good at making things eclectic so, master oh my gosh it's incredible. It's a great show. So, and then Westworld got a 
got to kind of revisit some of season two because I didn't really remember enough about um, the intricacies of the plot. But Westworld, the third season, is kind of uh, right around the corner. It's it's coming out right now. I think they have two episodes out, and uh, but I but we haven't started that yet because we got to like revisit um, some of season two. So. Yeah, I'm kind of like piling some content on with uh, a little extra free time right now. I burned out on Westworld like two or three episodes into season two, but I hear nothing but good things. Should I go back and uh, should I go back and revisit it myself? Because I know it's good. I just it didn't grab me in season two. Yeah, I mean, I'll let you know. I I think season three it looks. I mean, I've seen. Some of the trailers, I think they're going like a completely different direction. It's it's now like outside of the world of Westworld, I believe. It's outside of the theme park, and it looks very like futuristic in and tone. And what's that? I think I would be interested in that because that's definitely something about the story that is always it was always a big question mark in the first season, like what was outside the park, right? I think they're going to explore that in depth. And it's, I mean, it looks like a sci-fi. It always has been a sci-fi series, but now I think the tone is going to match kind of like the, you know, the, the real roots of the show, which is like um, a very fascinating uh, exploration and what humans would do if they could just kind of kill uh, party rape. I mean, just you know, it. There's like no consequences in this theme park, right? You're you're dealing with androids that are that are so realistic, but you just know you're in a theme park and you're incredibly wealthy, and you go there so that you can go, you can you know maybe just kind of have like a normal experience in the town and just kind of like be taken back to an old Western movie and kind of experience that or for, as you see in the show, as some people uh, go to the park for different reasons and they, they want to, you know, murder and, and just kind of have like a no limits experience. I mean, it is, I remember reading an interview. It's, um, it's either Jonathan Nolan or Chris, uh, Chris Nolan. I think it's, I think it's John Nolan and his wife writes it. I don't that know. It's one of the right. Nolan brothers. Yeah, but um, they I, I heard in an interview they were talking about it like the just how gory it is. And they really like believe that that gore is not without any intention, that it's absolutely necessary for the storytelling. I mean, it is it really is such a fascinating show. But I know what you mean. I, season two kind of like lost a little bit of my interest just because I have a short attention span, not because it's not incredible, but there's just so much going on and you really have to invest in it. You really have to pay attention. But yeah, I've been excited to see what season three brings. So I'm kind of going back and and revisiting some of uh, season two. So I'm all up to speed. Cool. Maybe I'll go back and check it out too. We can talk about it at some point. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, uh, let's take a quick break. And after that, Josh is coming back with some awesome content. content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, 
Climb every 14er in Colorado or ski every slope in New England. Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every single map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so that you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas that you've traveled to. So they offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box. Or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you do that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps that my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Park map. It's covered in pins because, well, you know, my wife and I, we uh, get around. And best maps ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there, done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. (gasps) Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact... It's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearing House. Josh, what do you got for us today? So today I brought... One of my favorite movies ever, which I guess is kind of the theme of this show. Uh, I'm going to talk about the 2009 James Cameron Masterclass in Technical Filmmaking, Avatar. Ooh. So, yes. I believe the statute of limitation has expired for spoilers. So, this will be very spoiler heavy. This, uh, I don't, I'm not really going to be trying to convince anyone to watch Avatar because I imagine if you have access to something like a podcast, you've probably been exposed to this movie at some point. So uh, this is going to be more geared towards getting people to maybe revisit the movie. Or if you're like me and you already love it, just watch it again with a new eye. So I'll do a quick rundown, uh, a little bit of background on the movie. And then I'm going to go into some of my favorite scenes and concepts from a film, things that have either inspired me or been uh maybe like created jokes or things that have carried over into my life or gave me a new vantage point with which uh, to view the world or just some other concepts that i've used as a lens when i when consuming other media so the synopsis for anyone who has not seen avatar the movie follows jake soley who is a paraplegic marine who travels to the planet pandora to become an avatar driver And the Avatar program is a division of the Resources Development Administration, the RDA. It's the the most bureaucratic, humanly named organization that's ever existed. And they are a militarized mining company that's stationed on Pandora to abstract uh, or extract unobtainium, which is an ultra rare room temperature superconductor. And it's only available on Pandora. Now, the Avatars are these genetically engineered bodies. They're a hybrid of human and the native Navi DNA. And they are psionically piloted by select RDA employees. 
and they're meant to work in the atmosphere of Pandora, which is toxic to humans, without the need for any extra breathing equipment. So what follows is basically a lost in the woods tale, a la Dances with Wolves, as Jake Soli comes to love the planet and its people as he views it through the eyes of a native. Of course, that leads to all sorts of amazing action set pieces, and it leads Jake on a mission to battle the humans for independence and free the Navi from, you know, the clutches of the humans destructive presence on the planet. So the development in, uh, on avatar started in uh, 1984. So James Cameron wrote an 80 page treatment for the film and filming was supposed to start directly after the completion of Titanic in, uh, 1997 and the initial plan was for a 1999 release but according to james cameron the necessary technology was not available yet to achieve his vision for the film is a little bit of a frame of reference 1999 was when the matrix was released and the matrix was certainly a special effects intensive uh film maybe a little more subtle than what was required for avatar but it was definitely you know a standout film so there were amazing effects at the time but also in 1999, uh, you and I, one of our favorite movies ever, The Phantom Menace, was released. And <laughs> as you and I know, that movie has aged horribly. And not so just bad. for the plot or the writing or all the racist references in it, <laughs> the effects are also absolutely horrible. And that movie is, I'd say, probably 60 or 70% effects. So when you compare it to something like Avatar, you know, it's like those those films aren't even in the same art form. Just imagine if Avatar had been created in nineteen in you know late nineties, it would have been a completely different movie. Yeah, that's a really good point, man. That is wild. So, I think with the design of this movie, James Cameron did a very smart thing, making the characters, you know, the Navi and all the creatures on the planet and the the environment photorealistic but including a ton of bioluminescence and tweaked camera proportions and adding extra limbs and kind of like merging uh, earth creatures together. So a lot of good design decisions that kind of hide the uncanny valley effect. Are you familiar with this? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So uncanny valley is uh, when looking at a CGI created character, you know, the human eye is so attuned to pick up on reality that there's usually something about, CGI, like if you're trying to mimic a human character, you can always kind of pick up that it's a little bit off. It's not, it's not completely real. And your mind, you know, is just picking up on all these very subtle uh, imperfections in the CGI or the animation. So by making these good decisions and tweaking the proportions and adding, you know, all these, these crazy colors and glowing effects, it, really kind of like blended the actual human characters with the CGI characters in a way that I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Even now, you know, 11 years later, very few CGI movies have the same kind of realistic effect for me that Avatar does. Yeah, I feel like maybe some of the CG characters in um, the Avengers movies, I mean, they... they I, I, kind of remember watching the first Iron Man and thinking like, okay, this is now this, these CG effects are almost indiscernible from, you know, real world 
kind of movement. Um, but you know, to point out something just as like a comparison of Marvel, the Marvel movies that have been so successful, Avatar was the highest grossing film until Avengers Endgame. So for a long time, at least for that decade, Avatar was the highest grossing film. Titanic was the second highest grossing film. So yeah, James Cameron, uh, he's obviously a master filmmaker and made a really good call putting this off because it it you I don't remember ever getting a sense of that uncanny, uncanny valley watching Avatar like you Never. would in uh, you know Phantom Menace. Yeah, everything you know it's it's off just enough that your mind doesn't really go there when watching Avatar. But even like even with the Marvel movies, think about like Age of Ultron, which I think is probably one of the low points in the Marvel. Uh, cinematic universe and that that movie came you know eight or nine movies down the road and i think the effects in that in some places are worse than some of the earlier marvel movies or way worse than avatar so it's it's i think that there's like a there's definitely a line that if you cross it where you're trying to do too much with cgi you can definitely get over into uh, a realm where things start to just you know, the animation doesn't match up or the proportions feel wrong. You know, it's really easy to step over into that, uh, that uncanny valley. And even the Marvel movies do it sometimes. Yeah, man, I uh, just absolutely love Avatar. I, I'm, I know you're not talking about sequels yet, but how excited are you for Avatar 2 to come out? Because he said kind of the same thing. He's waiting for the technology to catch up to do the story that he wants to do. I can't even imagine what it's going to be. And I'm hoping kind of like my dream movie would be the reinvasion of the humans back to Pandora. Because I think that, you know, they're going to be gone. They kick them off the planet. It's a six year journey. They're going to be gone for at least 12 years. So, you know, that would allow the Navi to make a lot of advancements as far as defending their world. But then the humans would come back as like an invasion force that's what I that's what I would love to see in the sequel. Well, I know they're going to do some of the story underwater. I've heard that talked about. I think there's going to be other Navi tribes. So you're going to see, you know, not just the one tribe of the Navi, you're going to see other species on that planet. And I mean, we're going to see more of Pandora the planet. I mean, that's I just can't wait. It's it's probably going to be uh like the movie that that everybody's talking about for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited. I got three more coming. That's fantastic. So something that uh, James Cameron does very well, I, I think this is probably goes back to aliens for me being aware of this is how his technology and his effects and, you know, the, the gear that his characters use they all seem to have like almost like a design history, you know, of hundreds of years of iteration that creates the equipment that the people are using in the movies. And there's a very strong internal logic. You know, the the creatures, you can almost see like uh, a biological evolution that brought them to this state. And then you look at, you know, the uh, the walker mechs that the humans are using and you can see all these little details on them that looks like, you know, maybe they at one point had a, a different type of arm or hand 
And then, you know, they found a weakness in that and slightly tweaked it until they come up with whatever you're looking at on screen now. Everything just seems so lived in. And that's got to be, to create a world like this, it's almost like being a god because you are creating an entirely new ecosystem and then an, an entire technological evolutionary backstory for everything that you see on screen. Isn't that how James Cameron filmed it too? They created the world in like a virtual reality sense and then shot everything with green screen. So they, they didn't like render it kind of after the fact, like they built the world first and then filmed it like the world was real and they were interacting with, uh, you know, different environments within that virtual reality world that they built. Is it right? Yeah. He, he essentially had like a, like a glorified iPad that when he used that as a viewfinder, as he looked through the screen, he could see the avatar 3d rendered world overlaid on, like you said, like green screen or blue screen. Uh, they would create like, if there's a log in this, in the scene that they're walking on, they create like a, a, a giant model of the log that is basically like a green screen texture. And when you view it through the viewfinder, it looks like the log they're walking on an avatar. And instead of seeing the character or the humans, the, the actors, you're seeing the Navi models. So he could move that around and frame up these worlds in real time. Man, that's awesome. So cool. So one of the blemishes that I, that has always bothered me with this is, uh, are you familiar with the the font papyrus? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. So, I mean, anyone who has even a rudimentary understanding of graphic design knows that this is in the top two worst fonts that's ever existed. So, I kind of did. I was really interested in why he would have chosen this, and so I did a little bit of background and I found an article on uh, designforhackers.com an article by David Cadavi, and the article is titled In Defense of Papyrus, Avatar Uses the World's Second Most Hated Font to Signal the Downfall of Civilization. So he, he, did, he does a deep dive into papyrus, and he reviews like the design fundamentals of it, things like the visual weight of the letters, the consistency of the letter forms, and the kerning of, of the font, which is essentially the space between the letters. And what he found was the design of papyrus is actually almost perfect in many regards. You know, he, he couldn't find a whole lot of issues with looking at a block of it on the screen. There weren't like hot spots where it was dark or light spots where a lot of the paper shines through. It all looked very consistent. And he found it was almost too perfect. So what that made me think of is, I mean, obviously everyone hates Nickelback, right? So, <laughs> Um, I heard someone talking about one of the reasons that Nickelback is so hated is because Chad Kroger, the lead singer of Nickelback, he's like such a control freak with his designs and his, and his, uh, arranging of his music that in the studio, you know, if there's one wrong note out of place, he'll go in and re-record like the entire, you know, the entire section of the song to replace it. And he'll tweak everything until it's like this technically perfect quote unquote masterpiece. I mean, it's still Nickelback we're talking about here, but it's, it's kind of that same thing with papyrus where 
you look at it, I know I've scrolled past it when I'm looking for fonts for design. It always catches my eye every single time. And then I'm like, I'm like, whoa, wait, no, it's papyrus. Can't use that. But every time it catches your eye because it looks good. So what this guy kind of settled on, David Cadavi, was there's something he calls material dishonesty. And a real world example of this would be like seeing like a fake wood grain or you know, like a fake brick print on a wall, how it always looks cheap because it's trying to imitate something from the natural right. world. It's not being authentic. That is fascinating. So he says that papyrus is material and dishonest because it has all these little nooks and crannies in it that are trying to trick you into thinking that it's being written on rough paper. Right. So that was, you know, his kind of his thesis was that the material dishonesty was why papyrus is a bad font. And then he says that in Avatar, this material dishonesty is an allegory for the falseness of the humans driving the avatars and how they're trying to become something that they are not. And honestly, that was kind of where he lost me with this thing. You know, like I, at the end of the day, it's, it's still a terrible font and it is a blemish that needs to be mem- uh, mentioned on avatar, which is otherwise just so great. But uh, it was really interesting to see his take on it. Like this guy, clearly thinks about fonts more than I do. And so, you know, I think the, I think ultimately the inclusion of it in this movie had to either be an oversight or a joke, but that's just my take. I clearly have a a, kind of a different view on it than David Cadavy does. Well, if we see Avatar 2 and the title screen is in Comic Sans, then we'll know that James Cameron is definitely (laughs) trolling audiences. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That would be the other worst font in the world. (laughs) So what do you think about the basic plot and storyline of Avatar? I mean, I personally think it's incredible. Uh, When I think of the plot of Avatar, I think about this old man that I don't know very well in Florida that I had a conversation with uh, many years ago about what a great movie it is. And all he had to say is it's a bunch of liberal Hollywood nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Because it, it's definitely, um, you know, it's not very thinly veiled that you have this capitalist organization that is willing to destroy this uh, beautiful ecosystem that they don't even really understand. And of course, you do have uh, those protagonists on the human side, like Sigourney Weaver, Um who is not just a protagonist in the movie. She is a protagonist in real life as well. I love you, Sigourney Weaver. You're the best. Sci-fi legend. Sci-fi legend. But, you know, she is, she is doing everything in her power to say, we need to study this. Like, you know, they're, they have some sort of nervous system that is integrating the entire planet. You know, they can like talk to their ancestors through this, sort of inter internet like web um you know so you you do see those people that are fighting for the planet for the navi but you know who who's gonna uh sort of overpower that it's gonna be the people with the guns it's gonna be the uh the people that are trying to get the unobtainium but I, you know, I think it's a great exploration i mean that's what science fiction is like you shouldn't be offended by 
a really good story because it might make you question your capitalist beliefs. I mean, that's that's a ridiculous reason to dislike something like this. I mean, there's obviously some very strong uh, Native American vibes with the Navi. I mean, they just even the way that they um, kind of talk about being like a warrior race and the way they paint their faces and their bodies and they have respect for the environment and they clearly kind of live in um, this cohesive way with everything around them. I mean, you know, it's it's not exactly, you don't have to read between the lines to kind of see that message. But the, the thing that's really fun about the movie too is even though you have this pretty clear-cut villain, um, Colonel Miles Quaritch, I think his name is. I mean, sometimes when I rewatch Avatar, I'm rooting for him because he's just such a badass. I mean, he's a great villain. Yeah, the, I, I like the uh, kind of the role reversal in the movie of the humans being the antagonists. You know, that's you don't get that a lot in movies. Um, so that's a really that's a really cool element of the plot. You know, I've heard this kind of surprised me when I heard this because I'm like you. I think that you know the story, while you know a little basic, is still it's like this it's this perfect um, it's this perfect backdrop and this canvas to you know paint this amazing world on. But I've heard at least two podcasts that I really respect their opinions and I'll tell you off mic who they are, but I've heard at least two podcasts talk about how avatar is like, you know, just a, a boring movie with a terrible plot. That's left no cultural impact on the zeitgeist of film. And it just blew me away that someone would have that, attitude towards this movie because yeah it is i mean it's basically dances with wolves or the last samurai it's that same type of story but i don't think that you need an extremely deep uh outline for this movie to work and i I also find that you know i guess this movie is more or less critically acclaimed you know it has a 82 percent on rotten tomatoes but a lot of times when you hear people just talking about avatar they're just you know they're just like oh yeah that that movie with the blue cat people, you know, it's like, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's as deep to a lot of people as you and I may feel it is. And I feel like that's a, I mean, that's a real loss. I probably watch this movie at least once a month because my daughter loves it. And so by watching it more, you know, I've really, I've done several deep dives into it. And every single time I find something more about the plot that impresses me. Yeah, I you know I just think you have I, any like well executed sci-fi story is a chance to put it in your own framework and kind of like apply it to you know even though it's clearly set way far in the future the technology is different there's alien species that don't exist you there's still so much that's applicable with what's going on and and in just like this this base question of what should we study nature should we respect nature or should we continue to just do everything possible to get resources you know the humans aren't necessarily um 
like they they don't really show any sort of malicious intent with the Navi. They're just trying to please their shareholders, right? And the, and in the context of this like perfect free market economy where the dollar comes above all else, that's not really being antagonistic. Like that is that is kind of the goal is to serve humanity and put humanity on a pedestal and all else be damned. And so I think any any like well executed uh, piece of art that kind of like helps us to unpack those things on a huge scale and like a huge cultural societal scale is a is a win in my book. I mean, we should always be questioning our intentions. We should always be asking ourselves, you know, at what point would we be willing to maybe go a different direction or. Uh, you know, how precious is life? You know, does it matter that it's alien life even? Does it matter that, you know, this is a, this is another planet or actually it's a moon, I guess, but you know, this is another world and does that devalue it a little bit and justify putting our needs over the, the, uh, all the life forms and all the ecology that's on Pandora? Well, I think, unfortunately, that humans would make decisions very similar to what RDA makes in this movie because that's been shown time and time again in our actual world that humans will make these exact or similar choices against other humans. If you take like, you know, the step removed of saying that, you know, these aren't even people, these aren't, these are not humans, these are aliens from another planet and their culture just seems so backwards and undeveloped compared to what we can do. Unfortunately, I think that some of the leadership in our world would make very similar decisions to what RDA does. It just strip mine the planet. Like, what does it matter? We don't have to live here. We're going to be here to get unobtainium and then we're going home. And it doesn't matter what happens to the locals because, you know, that's, that's nobody I know. It's easy to write them off. Absolutely. That's how every genocide starts is with dehumanizing you know, the other group and, and trying to f- frame them as the other, right? So the first step t- towards defeating your enemy is to dehumanize them. And I can't imagine that'd be hard with an alien. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk about some scenes from the movie. Some of my favorite scenes, something in the, in early on in this movie that kind of feeds into the deep world building is the intro to Grace Augustine, Sigourney Weaver's character. So uh, there's, a, there's a scene where they're walking into the bio lab and Norm, who is, uh, he's one of the Avatar drivers that's just landed on Pandora. He's mentioning how uh, Grace Augustine is a legend and the lab tech that's leading them in. It's like this very subtle scene where he just kind of like rolls his eyes and you know, you can, you like instantly get this sense that there's like this deep seated annoyance at, Grace Augustine's tyrannical ruling style over the uh, over the biolab. It makes it seem just with that one little eye roll makes it seem like the biolab and the the avatar program has existed for decades. You know, there's this really strong, rock solid internal logic with all of the world building that's going on. Except, I found there's one thing that's always bothered me early on in this movie is you know when they when the avatars wake up or when, uh, when Jake Sully goes in to drive his avatar and he wakes up for the first time yeah, and mm-hmm. you hear Jake's voice being projected from 
the avatar. And so it's always made me wonder, you know, is, is this a projection that's coming through? Is the voice being created by the actual avatar's vocal cords? And if so, why would the avatar have Jake Sully's voice? Because, you know, the, the avatar was not created for him. It was created for his twin brother who was killed. So that's something that, I, you know, it's very, that's a very small thing, but that's something that after watching this movie a thousand times has always kind of bothered me. I mean, it's probably for audiences to link that character deeply because I I have never once noticed that or thought about that. Um, But that's a pretty astute observation. Was uh, Jake Sully's brother that the Avatar was created for? Was was it a twin? Yeah, it's his twin, and his twin, his brother Tommy is a scientist. And they mentioned earlier uh, at the beginning of the movie that. Somebody kills him. They said somebody somebody ends his journey for the paper in his wallet. So he gets like killed in a mugging. And then they offer Jake Soley, who's a Marine, the opportunity to go and drive his avatar because he can psionically link with it. I mean, I imagine twins sound pretty similar. Yeah, maybe. Could be what it is. Maybe just reading too much into it. So that same scene where they where they they do the decanting and they wake up and they're having Norm perform this like it's a very very basic uh finger touching drill where he's touching like his pinky then his middle and his and his, or his ring finger's middle finger to his thumb he's going back and forth and they're testing like his link to the avatar that made me think of have you ever had a day where you wake up and you just can't get your mind to wake up you can't get your body to do what it's supposed to be doing or like I've had this before, like, you know, if I had a injured back and I take muscle relaxers, sometimes the next day when I wake up, it feels like I have a weak avatar link where I just feel like I'm driving my body, but it's not doing what I want it to. And that's kind of, that's been kind of a vantage for me. Uh, just this, this lens through which to, to view things that are happening in my, in my actual life. But, you know, through the lens of like a concept from a movie. And oddly enough, just thinking about having a weak avatar link has helped me like power through some of those things. Like, what would Jake Sully do? Oh yeah, he just like just worked this thing out. And so, you know, after a while, your body starts to wake up, and you like feel like the person you're supposed to be. But those little mind games help me get through stuff like that sometimes. What would Jake Sully do? <sighs> Put that, that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> Put that on a also, WWJD bracelet. <laughs> Yeah, slap bracelet. Also, he skips out. I love when he when he leaves that decanting scene. It's very video gamey. It's like in a video game where you skip the tutorial. That's pretty much what he's doing when he just like opens up the the lab where where they wake him up in his avatar and runs out and goes through the whole thing where he's he's running through like the training grounds to go meet up with Grace Augustine. Yeah, it's like such some, a like mystery fruit. Takes a big bite yeah, out of it. Yeah. It's such like a. It's like a skipping the tutorial scene from a video game. There's a lot of things in this movie that are very video gamey. Yeah, that's uh, one of the best scenes for sure. Because you know this guy's wheelchair bound, and of course that's like the first thing that I imagine he'd do if you get uh, linked to an avatar. You'd go running. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know the uh, there's a part where. Uh, his name is Selfridge. It's uh, Giovanni Rivisi. He's kind of the, uh, he's like the uh, CEO guy. 
So he goes into his office and picks up the little piece of unobtainium that's floating in the little, it's like a, uh, it's like a zero gravity plate where the, the rock is spinning around on his desk and he pulls it out of that thing and holds it up. And I've got this, I got this lamp on my desk, which is electromagnetic levitation lamp. It's like the same kind of technology. And you can see, it's just kind of like the evolution of technology that James Cameron does. You can see that he's basing that on something that exists in our world. But if you took it, you know, 130 years into the future, how much better that, uh, how much better that technology would be. Yeah, that character is great too. There's so many good villains in this movie. And he's like what you were talking about earlier about how some of the humans aren't necessarily, uh, they're not evil per se. They're more of like indifferent towards the natives. And he's one of them. You know, Quaritch, the main military bad guy, he is definitely vindictive. He wants to kill them. But Selfridge is, he's more of just, indifferent to the point where he's like, yeah, if it gets the job done, I guess do what you need to do. And it's crazy to see how that kind of like that kind of casual evil, what it can lead to. Yeah, definitely. So another, another part of the of the movie that's, it's a little nitpicky, but it's something I've always wondered about is, you know, when he's, he goes on his first mission and he gets chased off by the Panther. It's like a Panther monster that, the whole world turns on him and he gets lost in the woods. Right. There's a mm-hmm. scene where he's trying to light these matches to uh, to create a torch. And I've always wondered, like, do they have these specially formulated matches that work in the Pandorian atmosphere? Or is that is the atmosphere similar enough that the same kind of fire from Earth would burn on Pandora? Huh. I had never thought about that either. I, the atmosphere is definitely a different content because that scene where um, Zoe Saldana's character is like picking uh, Jake Sully up and he ends up, you know, he it's uh, Colonel Miles Quaritch like breaks open that pod, the remote pod that he's connecting in the avatar with. He's like, he can't breathe in the atmosphere. Or you see like uh, Colonel Quaritch like holding his breath before he goes outside to take a couple of shots as they're escaping the the base on Pandora. I mean, there's such a badass. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't even need his breathing equipment. <laughs> right. Just, <gasps> it's awesome. So, you know, the, uh, you know, the scenes where they will unplug the avatar driver and the, the avatar will just collapse into like a heap on the ground. Yeah. So we would always say avatar unplugged. If you see like, a, you know, like a, Jerry of the day ski video. Somebody <laughs> like goes a off a jump and, and their body just goes completely <laughs> limp. It just looks like their consciousness went away. So that's <laughs> been something that unplugged. ever since avatar, that's been something that's followed me through my entire life. And we had it two years ago, skydiving nationals. We were competing in uh, mixed formation skydiving. So we had a round going into it that, based on what was required in this round, we thought that there was potentially a chance that our team could set a world record based on our skill set. So we did all this practice and training and we were pretty stressed out about it on the way up to altitude. So we jump out of the plane. The first thing that happens as we come out of the plane is 
I start kicking my legs kind of uncontrollably. And so, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, kind of off to a bad start, but we can recover this. The very first move, my teammate, Rusty, he's going to fly under me and I'm going to do a flip over the top of him. And as I see him moving towards me, he just rolls over onto his side. It's a total avatar unplugged moment and just starts flying off at a 45 degree angle from me. <laughs> and so it like it threw me for such a loop because he's one of the best skydivers in the world. So I, I you know, kind of like chase him down. We get back together and I'm just like laughing at him the whole time. And needless to say, we did not set our world record, but <laughs> avatar unplugged became our team catchphrase for like the next six months. Anytime somebody would do something just maybe just ever so minutely out of character. Oh, Avatar Unplugged right there. Oh, man. Well, I'm definitely going to be using that because I have <laughs> a lot of Avatar Unplugged moments. Oh, yeah. I feel like I have a loose connection all the time. <laughs> Anybody who participates in action sports probably has some Avatar Unplugged moments. You know, um, a fallout, for, or not a fallout, but just kind of like a repercussion of this movie um, I don't know if you've heard of this, but uh, have you heard of Avatar-induced depression? You know what? It's very interesting that you mentioned that <laughs> because I do have something that, I don't know if it's the same thing, but I do have some thoughts on that concept. So you go. Well, there's just, I remember reading about this um, not long after the movie came out, but there was some kind of forum that had like a thousand followers and tons of comments and this and that. And it was about all these people that were experiencing this depression that was brought on by enjoying Avatar so much and then finding that real life did not really meet their expectation that was set by this utopic world of Pandora. And if you do some Googling, I mean, you'll find articles on psychology today and different news sites, but... Um, I think my favorite was on uh, Urban Dictionary. They have post-Avatar depression. And so here's the, here's the uh, Urban Dictionary um, definition. It says, post-Avatar depression, also known as PAD for short, is the case when a person after seeing the movie Avatar eventually realizes that the world they live in sucks ass and that they will never be able to fly, <laughs> jump, or live like the Navi do on Pandora. <laughs> oh, man, it's so true. I have something in my notes that is exactly that. Yeah. When I, when I saw this movie, I was working as a professional skydiver. I was, I was doing probably a 1,000 skydives a year, and I remember the scene where he goes to capture his banshee, and he has to go through like the whole, like he has to make the bond, and then he has to fly away with the Banshee to seal it, seal the bond with the first flight. In that scene, I just had like this moment where I stepped outside of my body and I just realized, man, nothing I will ever do is going to be as cool as this movie. And tomorrow, after I see this movie, I'm going to go and probably do 15 skydives for work. It, just, <laughs> it was the, the action and the, the set pieces are just so epic in this. Nothing will ever compare. Our world will always be living in Avatar Shadow. Well, at least we got some of that unobtainium. unobtainium. So there's that to console you. Yeah, that's the unobtainium is a little bit of a MacGuffin. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I, I love think it's it too. Great. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah, it's like it's 
you know, the, the MacGuffin is like the unbelievable device that exists only to drive the plot. But that, you know, we have a term for that, the MacGuffin, in our friends, in our friend group, the Crewball. We call that an EMP, an expected movie plot device. And that was, you know, that kind of came from our mm-hmm. era of doing like the crappy reversed engineered acronyms yeah. where part of part of it was just making them as crappy as possible. You know, like really pushing the credibility of the acronym with the hyphenated plot device in there. Right. And that, you know, I was thinking about that when I was writing up my notes for this and it, uh, it reminded me of the fantastic reverse engineered acronym that you created recently the uh, stop acronym. Did I create one? You did. It's it's stop. It's start teamwork or perish. Stop. Oh. <laughs> it's such a good reverse engineered acronym. Well, I've just oh, noticed man. every stop acronym. The S is always stop. Oh that man, was, that was start, where that came it's so from. So perfect. It's so good. As some fantastic joke writing right there, Brett. All right. Well, I, even- I guess. You know, if you haven't seen Avatar, I'm sorry that we just spoiled a bunch of the great scenes, but come on, I mean. (laughs) And pointed out some of the things we didn't like, which uh, really, uh, it's funny that we just talk about, you know, we like, just humans like to nitpick things. But man, this movie is still just one of my all time favorites. It's one of my wife's all time favorites. It has tons of rewatchability. I, the, sequel is going to probably become the highest grossing film again of all time. Yeah, it's going to raise the bar for sure. Special effects are going to take a monumental step forward when the new one comes out. You know, you know, if for everyone that has seen avatar, which is everyone in the world, go watch avatar again, you know, watch it with new eyes and maybe a new perspective. It's just as good today as it was 11 years ago. I think it's a shame anytime I hear hear someone bag on, you know, the simplicity of the plot or something because this is an absolute beast of technical and artistic movie making magic. And uh, yeah, you can find it on several of the streaming platforms. So you have no reason to not check Avatar out again. Right on, awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening. We got some more great content coming down the content pipeline for you. So please. Join us again. Thanks again.